Thank you for joining us for a new edition of the Pennsylvania Library Association's PA LaunchPod, the podcast that focuses on Pennsylvania libraries and the people who make them special. Every day in Pennsylvania, a librarian impacts the life of a child, family, student, job seeker, grandparent, or the guy next door. This is your opportunity to hear what is happening at a library somewhere in Pennsylvania, maybe even your hometown. This is Tom Berman, one of your hosts of PA LaunchPod. Today on PA LaunchPod, we are speaking with Iron Snavely, Rare Books Librarian at the State Library of Pennsylvania. Iron, good morning. Good morning, Tom. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for joining us on a Tuesday morning. Iron, I've not had a chance to come visit the library or the Rare Collections Library. Can you tell me about the history and mission of the department? The Rare Collections of the State Library of Pennsylvania are the some of the original documents of the State Library. The core collection of the Rare Collections um, is called the Assembly Collection. It was begun by uh, the uh, by Benjamin Franklin, who was the clerk of the Provincial Assembly prior to American independence. He and the uh, president of the, the Assembly, uh, Isaac Norris, uh, bought the first volumes of the State Library, the statutes at large. That was because uh, that was a collection of English common law, which was a, an essential reference collection for a legislative body, such as Pennsylvania Assembly. So what we have, and this is really special, have the original volumes, a collection that grew to over 400 volumes uh, from the State Library, we, we have those original volumes. We also have legislative histories that tell us about how the collection grew. Uh, volumes that were recommended within the Colonial Assembly and then subsequently the State uh, uh, Pennsylvania Assembly and, and the Pennsylvania Senate and so we can actually see when items were proposed and when monies were appropriated. So the collection itself, or the library, dates from 1745. Its first home was in what's today called Independence Hall, but it was then known as the Old State House. The well, the, the collection, which, as I said, grew to over 400 volumes, but then other volumes were, were added as well. But you might as well characterize it as a traveling collection, because while it began in Philadelphia uh, during the American Revolution, especially 1777 with the British occupation of Philadelphia, the collection, along with the assembly and with the Continental Congress, moved, uh, trying to stay one step <laughs> ahead of the British. Oh, sure. Uh, moved to places like Lancaster, like Easton, like York, uh, 
Pennsylvania, and then eventually came back to Philadelphia. But then when the new state capital was set up here in Harrisburg after the beginning of the 19th century, the collection itself was moved. But that wasn't the only move for this collection. Uh, during the Civil War in 1863, when Harrisburg was in danger of being invaded by Confederate forces, the collection was loaded on boxcars and, and moved to a more safe location. Now, in the 1890s, there was a, a, a fire in the Capitol that consumed the old Capitol. Luckily, the State Library was housed in an adjacent building, so it was not consumed in, in that fire. And it survived. That's amazing. It survived. But you can see how this collection <laughs> was often in danger, but has been preserved uh, for us and, and, and our children. Oh, very nice. Thank you. So what is the mission of the library as, as it is now? The library has sought to buy books and periodicals, accumulate documents, but items that are by, for, and about Pennsylvania. Mm, and okay. our collection, while it has um, a national and international uh, focus, or at least the parameters are that broad, the, the, the actual focus is on the uh, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, both before and after independence. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like you're still getting uh, materials today. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. We have two rounds of purchases uh, yearly, one around January, um, and we just completed that round, and then another in June. Is that based on budgeting or just? We have an endowment that we're we're, we've been spending down over the last three years, I'd say. Something okay. Like and we're still, we're not even halfway through that. I would oh, say. that's nice. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's fun to be able to build the collection, uh, to purchase new things. Uh, of course, you try to build to your strengths, um, and those strengths are things like uh, the American Revolution in Pennsylvania, the early Republic, uh, another area in our collection development uh, planning would be uh, Pennsylvania science, mm. Pennsylvania medicine is another big area, and then the Industrial Revolution in uh, Pennsylvania. So we our, our purchasing goes from the very early period. I just purchased uh, some Hannah Penn items uh, having to do with the border dispute with Maryland, Calverton, <laughs> Maryland. Um, but our purchases run through the at least the early 20th century. Okay. Now, besides purchasing materials, do you get donations? private individuals, do they donate family materials? We do, we do. We get um, items 
such as uh, sometimes uh, family Bibles, although more, um, I would say, newspapers are donated sometimes. Sometimes we get, you know, government documents, particularly Pennsylvania documents. Okay. Uh, we get ephemera sometimes. You know, we get a, a, a number of, you know, a variety of things. Okay. And uh, usually, you know, we will be contacted by a donor um, who, you know, perhaps wants to know the, the value of, of, of an old publication that they have. And we will try our best to help them assess that. And sometimes that ends up as, as a uh, donation. I'm a great yard sailor, and sometimes <laughs> you'd be surprised how many items um, ranging from like uh, uh, children's books to uh, maybe uh, novels or literature, uh, but that turn out to be rare. And so I, I've uh, uh, donated things my, myself. Well, that makes sense. I can imagine there are a lot of things at yard sales that have been sitting in a family's, you know, attic for years and years. Do you ever take uh, photographs or do you stick more to text documents? Uh, we, we do take some photographs. Okay. One, one um, photograph that comes to mind is a photograph from, I believe, what's well, in the 19-teens. It's a photograph of a of a physician and his wife in a Model T, I believe it is, um, driving along, I think it was a dirt road. Uh, but I particularly love old photographs because for me, it's like you're looking into the past. Of course, yeah. Yeah, we, we have um, a, a number of photographs. Now, some of those things are actually in, in periodicals or publications. Mm. Uh, one that comes to mind would be, uh, let's see, uh, there are Pennsylvania National Guard publications. And uh, one of them is a group shot uh, in which uh, the first head of the Pennsylvania National Guard is, is seated with uh, you know, some of his colleagues. Oh, that's really neat. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Now, I've been asking lots of questions. I should ask you, what is the most common question that people ask you, either when they come or when they call on the phone? Okay, one of the most common questions is, what is the oldest item in your collection? <laughs> and I always tell them, um, now, this is, I, I refer to a complete volume because we do have, uh, bits and pieces of earlier things, but the most uh, yeah, the, the first publication that we have is the Nuremberg Chronicle. Uh, we we have the German edition of the Nuremberg Chronicle from 1493. Oh, My wow. colleague, uh, <laughs> uh, Kathy Hale, says she says Columbus didn't didn't read it because it had not yet come out. <laughs> because he sailed in 1492. Yeah. So that's in the original German. Do you have an English translation to, to uh, interpret it? You know, I'm, I'm not actually sure. I'm sure we, we, I know we have a book about 
the making of the Nuremberg Chronicle. Okay. I'm sure we would probably have uh, a, a published English edition at some point, but uh, the, this uh, 1493 edition is, is a German edition. We talked about older books like the Nuremberg Chronicle. How do you handle older books? And when you people come to visit, how do they handle the books? Are they allowed to touch the books? Do you show them the books and they just watch? Well, okay, I do, it, I do consider this more of a hands-on facility because, um, albeit a supervised kind of hands-on uh, experience. The, I, I want to give, first of all, give people the experience of interacting with the book, you know, with, within reasonable constraints. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things you want to do with any rare book is to make sure that it's properly supported. So one of the things we have are book cradles uh, that will make sure that, uh, you know, the, the, the boards, you know, the uh, uh, you know, covers of the book um, are supported so that the um, text block or, or the interior, you know, uh, receives proper support because there are a lot of ways in which a rare book can be damaged. And a lot of them have to do with not being properly supported. Um, Depending on the size of the book, if it is a large folio volume or a what's called an elephant folio volume, sometimes the sheer weight of the pages can tear them. Oh, okay. So the pages themselves have to be uh, supported and handled very carefully. Uh, Sometimes that involves holding the edges of the page and then turning it uh, slowly and and carefully. Uh, Sometimes that involves having perhaps your, your hand under the the, the page or, or under the text block, but this has to be done very, very carefully because you're dealing with books that are very old. Uh, another thing that we use, uh, we have things called book snakes uh, that are weighted uh, strings, lead weighted strings. Uh, and of course that the lead is woven in but the, uh, these things hold the pages open. Um, also, we have mylar tape. It's not a deep, not adhesive, uh, but which we wrap around uh, a group of pages uh, and then uh, we will either tie or, or tape that mylar tape uh, around the uh, back of the book, around the, the, the board. And that, again, will hold the book open, uh, but in a safe, supportive way. Okay. Now, talking about the books and their fragility, do you keep the books in any kind of a climate-controlled environment? We do. Okay. We do. We have two different vaults um, in the rare collections. One is a pulp paper vault, and that contains items 
basically from about the Civil War on to the present. Mm. Pulp, of course, comes from wood, wood pulp, but that it can be highly acidic. Well, it is highly acidic unless it's buffered, and that's kept at uh, one set of temperatures and humidity. Then we also have uh, actually a, a larger rag paper vault, and those are items up to about the Civil War. So that often I think of it as uh, newspapers and books that employ resume quality paper. Mm -hmm. But uh, that, so actually, ironically, then the older paper is often better. Oh, okay, it's more stable. It sounds like yes, it's more stable, and that that word you know, stable is the the operative principle because what we try to do is maintain the the stability of the items, and we do that by regulating temperature, humidity, um, filtering the air, and trying to keep, uh, well, use LED lighting, which is much friendlier to the, okay. to the materials. As anybody knows who's had a, a photograph on a wall, uh, the radiation in natural light uh, will fade and, and damage uh, materials, both text and illustrations. Oh, I've seen even book jackets on library stacks get faded because they're right. across from a window. And that's right. just you know, regular old sunlight. Yeah. And then one last thing about that. One of the things that is really destructive for books and, and photographs materials is the vacillation in temperature and humidity. Particularly, you know, of, well, uh, as the, the, the weather's been recently, you might have temperatures in the 40s, maybe even 50 one day and zero the next. And if materials are exposed to such wide vacillations, um, it will play havoc with them. I can only imagine. Yeah. Iron, since you mentioned that you know the books, the materials are fragile, have any of these materials been digitized and put online? Yes, um, a number of them have. Uh, we have digital collections uh, for, well, usually focused around a particular time period or a particular collection. Uh, one would be uh, materials regarding the, the American Civil War. Another, and, and one of those particular collections, a separate collection called the Pennsylvania Necrologies. Those are actually um, obituaries of Civil War soldiers. But we also have uh, online collections of um, World War I items that would focus on uh, the involvement of Pennsylvania soldiers uh, in World War I. Uh, one item that I can remember that, that comes to mind um, is actually uh, a diary of, I don't know if the fellow was a physician or, um, but he's evidently uh, 
on the medical staff of what was called a hospital train. Um, these were uh, oh, trains character, uh, carrying uh, doctors, nurses, and medical equipment, um, uh, treatment centers uh, to the front in World War I. These were actually a continuation of similar um, efforts by the uh, United States Sanitary Commission during the Civil War. Um, and we have a lot of those documents as well. But, but um, I don't believe the uh, Sanitary Commission documents are digitized. Oh, okay. But if I could add something about uh, the advantages and the, and the reasons for digitizing items. Sure. That might be helpful for, for listeners. Uh, one of the problems that's an inevitable problem with rare items is that any physical use wears them out more and potentially damages them. So the quandary is how do you uh, provide access and use to scholars and the public with do, uh, while doing the least amount of damage. Mm -hmm. And digitization nicely meets that need because items are scanned and digitized um, there's a whole process um, of, uh, well, one is, is uh, optical character recognition that will kind of clean up the, the, the scan. But the advantage is that a researcher or a student um, or someone just browsing the internet can access the document without physically touching it. And so you can grant access to users to an audience and not only someone who is maybe 10 miles or 100 miles away, but somebody half a world away. So that you know, meets both the access and preservation needs uh, for rare materials. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Are there plans to digitize other collections uh, in the when future? We are digitizing, you know, pretty much continuously. Um, and we often do that with uh, companies like Internet Archive. Mm, mm -hmm. or, uh, I believe there's a company called Backstage. Um, but typically in a case like that, well, okay, the Internet Archive arrangement we have, they hire um, a person uh, to come in and digitize materials. Usually, um, or in the past, that's been done on a smaller book scanner. And that person scans, you know, seven, eight hours. The actual equipment, uh, again, is designed to give, to do maximum scanning with minimal damage. 
let me describe one of the scanners. Sure. The the book scanner. Well, okay. The the person doing the scanning has the book on a book cradle. There is a platen above the cradle, and that person uh, you know, moves the page. The platen comes down. They take the scan. He hits a, a pedal. The platen goes up. He moves the next page. And so you can see it's a fairly, um, a fairly quick, but more important, a less onerous process because scanning is very labor intensive. Oh, it can be very tedious. Yeah. Tedious, but mm -hmm. also the pages have to be moved very carefully. Now for a larger item, like a, a large folio volume or a map or an atlas, they use what are called flatbed scanners and these are much larger uh, scanners, perhaps the size of a, of a, a small table, well, not a small table, like maybe a, a larger kitchen table. Um, and there you have the cameras overhead and a, a large digital scanner like that will provide much greater resolution. So that the formats um, that are produced are either um, uh, PDFs, which is a, a probably the lowest quality, mm, uh, mm -hmm. but then JPEG uh, scans and the, the highest um, uh, the, 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 the highest resolution. I'm trying to remember the the acronym. Is it probably that. a TIFF? A TIFF. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly. That's a very large file. I that's know what you're a saying. Very large file, which actually gets into part of the problem with storage of large digital Oh, it's files. massive it amounts of storage needed. Lots and lots of, of digital space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but you can see the advantages. And well, I mean, we are very lucky to be living in a day and age where we can preserve so much of, of our literary heritage. Absolutely. And that brings up a thought I had, you know, between preserving it physically, preserving it digitally. Mm -hmm. What is, you know, what challenges do you face? You know, what does the future look like for the uh, collections? You know, well, what's your thoughts? Um, I think that, you know, with, I mean, there, there are, uh, there are inevitable, um, you know, physical problems. I mean, things, nothing is going to last forever, um, particularly uh, in a, 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 you know, paper um, medium. But we can do what we can to extend the shelf life, so to speak, of those mm -hmm. materials. Now, part of that is actually replicating a scan. Um, and perhaps things could be replicated every, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, uh, ad infinitum. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but basically, you know, things are going to deteriorate. That's inevitable, but we can, um, we can prolong their, their lifespan. And then technology is improving all, all the time. I always remember a, uh, you know, a situation at a previous workplace of mine. Uh, for two years, I worked at the American Philosophical Society as a project architect. And one of my projects was to uh, do, uh, we, we, we were uh, doing metadata and um, uh, doing online finding aids for some of their legacy collections. But I was working on Darwin letters and I remember at the end of that collection was a phase box um, with scraps of, of some Darwin letters. And I asked, What's, what are these? Why are they here? And basically, they, they were keeping those, safekeeping those fragments for a time when the technology would catch up. With, with the need and those they would be reconstituted. If you oh, know. wow. Yeah, so, I mean, there, there is one uh, archival principle there and you may want to use it or not, uh, but one of the things that you do um, in, in scanning or moving something to a new technology is you don't want to, um, put something in a medium that that cannot be recalled. Mm, sure, sure. Yeah, so you don't, well, it, it would be like um, putting uh, putting a, a, an oral recording on a VHS tape. And you know, or even putting things on floppy disks. Yeah. Yeah, they might be on a floppy disk, but you always run into technological problems. Mm hmm. DVDs, for example, um, or, uh, 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 you know, um, uh, the, the uh, well, often we'll have um, the, the, the name or, or some paint on, on the top of the disc. Well, that actually corrodes the, um, the, the disc. And, oh, um, so I wasn't aware of that. None of those things um, have you know, will be around in, in perpetuity. Uh, they, uh, things, you know, need to be moved to new media, but mm -hmm. you always have to be able to, to uh, kind of uh, uh, reconstitute them in a, um, in, a, in a medium that can be read by a, an accessible technology. Let's put it that way. Actually, that's why microfilm's still around. It's, that's yeah. why micro and actually microfilm is a very very durable medium. Medium. Absolutely. We still have microfilm. Do you know when they started using microfilm? No, I don't. Um, maybe a decade prior to the Civil War. Oh, good heavens! That long ago. That long ago, and microfilm. That depends what the microfilm is made of. Some of it's actually flammable inherently. But uh, microfilm is very durable. It's just like um, books are a, 
a, a medium, a technology that's been around for, oh, I don't know, close to two millennia. Mm -hmm. So just because an item is in an older medium doesn't mean that it's not a durable one. And so we're always looking for ways to preserve uh, the, to preserve our literary heritage and cultural heritage. Iron, as we wrap up, uh, if someone wants to come and see all this wonderful collection, how would they arrange a visit with you, either just to see the collection, to do research? Well, um, first of all, they could contact me uh, via email or um, just a phone call. Uh, my email address is I-R-S-N-A-V, is in Victor, E. L Y at PA.gov. My telephone number is area code 717-783-5982. What are the hours of the library? Uh, the hours of our main reading room. And the, of course, many of the transactions happen there. But the, those hours are 9.30 to, to 5 p.m., Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturdays from 9.30 to 4.30. However, oh, okay. um, rare collections, uh, reading room appointments can be made um, for any time from, let's see, uh, well, 9 o'clock, about four o'clock Monday through Friday. So the rare collections reading room is a separate reading room. Okay. I normally you know, meet people up in the lobby or in the, the main library. And then we come down here to, to the, the reading room. Is the library located within the main Capitol building or are we you guys are in a separate located, location? We're located in the forum building. Okay. Uh, which is right behind the Capitol. Um, we are, uh, the, the building's located next to Soldier, Soldier's Field, um, right behind the Capitol, uh, along Commonwealth Boulevard. Great. Well, I certainly encourage everyone to come and visit. Uh, I know, Irene, you really like to you know share the you know, literary heritage, as you said, with everybody. First of all, if I could say something about how I see my role. Sure. Okay. Um, I'm principally a storyteller, and I see myself as telling the stories of historic Pennsylvania through exhibits and through published research. Uh, we always... Uh, have, well, we do four open houses a year. Uh, we always have exhibits both in the main reading room and down here in the uh, rare collections reading room. Uh, currently, we have an exhibit uh, about the, uh, it grew out of a, an open house. We had uh, a lunch with Robert Burns and we have an exhibit um, showing, well, talking about uh, the Jacobite rebellions of uh, the last one was in 1745. 
Uh, and then we also have materials you know, from famous Jacobites or, or uh, uh, who, and I ought to define that, uh, those were the supporters of the Stuart uh, dynasty of, of kings of England. Okay. Some of those uh, famous Jacobites, for example, were uh, people like General Hugh Mercer, um, who was not only the physician to Bonnie Prince Charlie, but uh, subsequently um, ended his life as a brigadier general in the American uh, Continental Army. Uh, and he actually uh, died at the Battle of Princeton in uh, 1777. Uh, we have other famous Pennsylvania Jacobites like uh, Sir William Keith, who was a lieutenant governor of the Commonwealth, um, actually a contemporary of Hannah Penn. Uh, but so we, we have materials like that. We have the open houses, uh, which you know, all of these things are designed to highlight our collections and really uh, do outreach and bring people from the outside, both uh, Commonwealth employees, uh, but also school groups um, or other uh, citizens of the Commonwealth. So uh, this is one way that I do outreach. Another is uh, through published research. I use uh, one of the uh, publications that where I've published is Pennsylvania Heritage Magazine. And one of my uh, uh, well, fairly recent publications was uh, called The Biographer of the Feathered Tribes, Alexander Wilson and the American Ornithology. And so I, I work with the editor of that publication and to highlight some of our collections. And uh, of course, a research article is, is more in depth, but again, it's, it's a way of doing outreach. And I particularly like popular venues, like popular historical uh, uh, you know, journals, like, like Pennsylvania Heritage. Uh, so all of these things then are designed to uh, make people aware of our collections. Uh, and then to bring them in either f to do research themselves or to bring in groups to look at and, and interact with these collections. Because as I think I said previously, uh, in, in my own view, uh, to have the, these treasures and have them just plucked away uh, <laughs> without people being able to appreciate them is it's a, a very sad thing. So Absolutely. That's part, that's how I see my, my own job. But you're balancing things. You're balancing access with um, preservation. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, you know, why you know, I've, I've uh, developed the, the, the kinds of experiences that I have so I can guide people and, and give them a good experience. That's great. Iron, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I do encourage all of our listeners to check out the website for the Rare Collections Library and, of course, visit the Rare Collections Library next time you're in Harrisburg. Okay. Yeah, okay. Iron, have a great day. Okay, thank you so much, Tom. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us on PA LaunchPod.
Thank you for listening. You can find our podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. For more information about this episode and how you could be featured on this podcast, visit palibraries.org slash group slash pa launchpod. Remember, membership matters.